0: Welcome to Design for Joy, the radio ministry of Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California, celebrating the fact that God's people are designed for the joyful Christian life. We are glad that you could join us for today's broadcast with our pastor and teacher, Dr. Mark Mafuchi. And now, let's go to the teaching for today. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter four is our passage today. We are going through a series of messages through the book of Hebrews today in chapter four, and here's the key concept for today's lesson. Christ understands you. Christ understands you. While you're finding Hebrews chapter four. Does it ever feel to you like no one quite gets you? No one quite understands the way that you feel or what you're going through? No one quite can connect with the things that you face and the issues of your life. It's easy to feel alone. But today we learn that we have a great high priest who gets us. Christ understands you. Before we get to our passage today, let me just set the scene. One of the great things that the book of Hebrews teaches is that God is not haphazard in the way that he orders history. We learn from the book of Hebrews that God was preparing things all along the way. In Galatians, it says that when the time was right, Jesus came. But all along the way, God was getting the time right. And one of the ways he was preparing history was showing us his relationship with Israel. This relationship with Israel gives us ways for us to understand his relationship with us. He's provided us these methods for understanding all through history. So, for instance, when we see the Old Testament system of sacrifice, we understand Christ's sacrificial work and the shedding of his blood. When we see the awfulness of the slavery of God's people in Egypt, we understand the awfulness of the slavery to sin and the awfulness of injustice. To human beings, over and over again, the the stories of the Old Testament and and the characters of the Old Testament establish categories of understanding that we bring to the New Testament so that we can fully understand God's truth. Now today, the particular image that we'll look at is the image of the Old Testament priesthood in Israel and how that is completed in Jesus Christ. So you follow along as I read. We'll start in verse 14 of chapter 4. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The central issue of humanity as we relate to God is our sin. The central question is, how do I get my sins forgiven? How can I be pardoned and purified before the gaze of God? Our sin is the issue. Our author reminds us of how dangerous it is to, to fool around with God in Hebrews chapter 10 where it says, The Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why is it dreadful? It's dreadful because if sin isn't dealt with, our experience before God will be all of judgment. And so throughout the Old Testament, We see the process of dealing with sin. And that was the function of the priesthood. The priests are needed to make intercession between the people and God. The priests were needed to carry out the sacrifices to turn away the wrath of God for a period of time. What does the high priest do? Go over to chapter five, verse one, for the author continues this image. Read with me. He says, every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray because he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of people. What, do the high priest, what does the high priest do? Well, primarily, he is the representative of the people before God. And the central element of his representation is when he offers sacrifices. The sacrifice of the blood of an animal, which for a period of time will turn away God's wrath. Not because the animal is anything, but because those sacrifices were a picture of what was coming, the sacrifice of Jesus himself. And so the system of the Old Testament sacrifice pointed the way to Christ. And the priests who gave those sacrifices all throughout the Old Testament, they came from among men. In other words, they were human. They were frail. They were sinners. And so they could understand and relate to others. They would deal gently with their people. But once a year, On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would offer sacrifices, and he would always offer two. The first sacrifice was for his own sin and the sin of the other priests. The second sacrifice was for the sin of the people. And he'd enter the Holy of Holies on that day alone, and he'd pour out that blood on the mercy seat there on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And God received that blood and turned away wrath. But always before he dealt with the sins of the nation, he had to deal with his own sin. And that shows us the frailty of the Old Testament system. It was frail on two points. The priest was himself a sinner and had his own sins to deal with. And the priest was himself temporary. He would die. He would not live forever. One day he would need to be replaced. But the point is that this human system was pointing to something more that was unfolding. The Hebrew author speaks of of it again in chapter 10 when he says this. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, talking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. See, what he's saying is this. The Old Testament system of sacrifices was inadequate, but it was planned to be inadequate because it never was the full picture. It was always pointing to something more, the one who was coming to be the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. And when he laid down his life once for all in glory, he sat down. He sat. It impresses me that the one piece of furniture we don't see in the temple is a chair. There's no chair in the temple because the work was never done until Jesus. It was fulfilled in him. The point of this comparison between Jesus and the human priesthood is not that Jesus came to fit into the system of the priesthood to be kind of one of the bunch. The point of this comparison is that all that system pointed to him. He was the fulfillment. He was the end. He is the culmination of everything that happens in that sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And he is not like the human priest prone to weakness. He is God the Son, indestructible and eternal. And the blood of his sacrifice is not the blood of an animal, inadequate. It is his blood. And God takes his blood and judges it to be eternally enough. And justice is eternally served. So these are the comparison points that we're making. All throughout the book of Hebrews, what we've seen is that the Hebrew author is comparing Jesus to what has come before, and he's demonstrating the supremacy of Christ. In the very beginning of the book, we we saw him say, Jesus is greater than the prophets and the forefathers. He's the final word. And then he said, Jesus is greater than angels, because even though they are heavenly beings, they are still servants. Jesus is the Son then he goes on to say Jesus is greater than Moses, the pinnacle, the, 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 the person that the nation looked to as their greatest of all leaders. But Jesus is supreme above Moses. In the portion of chapter four that we skipped over, he said Jesus is greater than Joshua the great general of the nation that led the people into the promised land, which he calls the rest. In other words, the destination. But Jesus leads us into eternal rest and eternal Sabbath of glory. But here, he's now continuing that hymn of praise, if you will, comparing Jesus and his greatness. And he says, Jesus is greater than all the high priests that came before. He is supreme. He's superior first because he's sinless. Even though the human high priest had to sacrifice sins for his own failure and was subject to weakness, but Jesus has no such weakness. In Hebrews 7, it says this, Such a high priest meets our need, who is holy and blameless, pure and set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. His blood suffices forever and for all who will believe. Secondly, Jesus is superior because he is eternal. God the Son. Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. It's probably on the very next page. It says, he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. A permanent priest like Melchizedek. Now that language there introduces a brand new comparison. And this can get a little bit um, complicated. So we need to remember who Melchizedek was in the Old Testament and draw to our understanding what it is that the author is saying about him. Back in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham, on the way back from a victory in battle, meets a man called Melchizedek. And in that exchange, Melchizedek, becomes a symbol of a new kind of priesthood, not in the lineage of Aaron. Just in the same way Jesus is a priest, not in the lineage of Aaron. The story is told in greater detail in chapter seven of the book of Hebrews. So just turn there with me, will you? In the first three verses, because here he, he returns to these themes over and over again. And in the first three verses, he tells the story. It says, this Melchizedek, was the king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever." Melchizedek's story is the story where we first see tithing in the Bible. One-tenth of the riches of Abraham was given to Melchizedek. But it's significant for much more than just that. It introduces to us a figure that the Holy Spirit uses as a literary foreshadowing of Jesus. It's not that Melchizedek was Jesus. He isn't. He is a completely unique individual. But the way the Holy Spirit chose to tell the story of Melchizedek, the details of the way that the the story is explained through the inspiration of the Spirit, leave the opportunity to make the connection to the reality of Jesus. So, for instance, Melchizedek is called the king and priest of Salem. Just like Jesus is both king and priest, Melchizedek has both offices, and he exercises those offices in a place called Salem, which is the ancient name of Jerusalem. Just like Jesus, who will reign one day in the new Jerusalem, Melchizedek reigns in ancient Jerusalem. Melchizedek has no genealogy in the Bible. There's no telling of his parents or of his ancestors or of his death. It's a foreshadowing, a literary foreshadowing of the eternal king and priest, Jesus Melchizedek receives a tithe from Abraham, which means he accepts the fact that Abraham sees him as greater, just like all of the Old Testament characters that we're covering see Jesus as greater. Melchizedek is a priest outside of the order of Aaron, outside of the Levitical system. It introduces to us the idea that a different kind of priesthood is possible, a different kind of covenant is coming, the new covenant. In Christ. All of these things are tied up in simply the way that the story of Melchizedek is told. And the Holy Spirit inspires the Hebrew author to see those sig- signals, to hear those hints, and to teach us now that Melchizedek foreshadowed Jesus. He is eternal, just like that character that we didn't know the end and we didn't know the beginning of. But Jesus is also superior because of his sufferings. And his sufferings allow him to sympathize with us. Read the very next verse, 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. The Greek in that verse starts with these literal words in the days of his flesh. It reminds us that God the Son was not always flesh. It reminds us that part of the sacrificial rescue of Jesus was his coming, taking on flesh and walking among us. And as he did that, the author says to us, there were times when he was agonizing in prayer. Now, there were probably many times where that happened. But the one that comes to our mind in the telling of this verse is Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. When Jesus anticipated the cup of suffering and, and the pain and the agony that he would experience, and he prayed that he wouldn't have to drink it, but he was obedient to the mission and he was reverent to God. And notice the Hebrew author says, God heard his prayer. Now ultimately, of course, he was resurrected from the dead. But just because God heard his prayer doesn't mean that the answer was yes. In fact, when Jesus prayed, may this cup pass from me, the answer was no. God was listening, but the answer was no. And that fact enables him to be a sympathetic priest for you today. Because sometimes the prayers that you pray, that God hears and responds to, his response will be no. Because I have something better for you. I have a different plan for you. I have to say no to that request so that you can get to my greater yes. Just like God had to say no, that the the suffering wouldn't come so that Jesus could get to the greater yes of the resurrection. See, when you hear that kind of answer to your prayers, you have a high priest who's been there already. He knows what that's like. And by taking that cup of suffering, he has completed the sacrificial system. All the shadows are now completed in reality. He is the great high priest. So what does that mean for us? Look at back to verses 15 and 16 of chapter four. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. God the Son is a sinless being. Jesus never sinned, though he felt temptation. But don't think for a moment that just because Jesus lived a sinless life that he can't relate to the temptations you feel. In fact, the opposite is true. It is only as we resist temptation that we feel the force of it. C.S. Lewis uh, had a a writing that touched on that. He said this, a man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. The sinners who cave right away, the minute Satan whispers a temptation in our ear, We don't know what it really is like to feel the full force of temptation. We've never weathered the storm. Maybe maybe we haven't ever really felt that force wind. Only the man who has never caved, who never gave in, who felt the full course and duration of temptation to the very end in every single battle, he knows what it's like to feel what temptation really is. And he knows your struggle. Jesus fought the battle all the way to to the end of every episode and never gave in to temptation. So when you are tempted, run to him. He, above all people, understands what you're going through. And the author says we can go to him with confidence. Your Bible might say, boldly approach the throne of grace. What does that mean? It does not mean that we ought to swagger into the presence of God and somehow feel ourselves to be indispensable. It does not mean that we can feel arrogant. The word that we translate boldly or confident in, in Greek literally says, saying it all. Saying it all, what does that mean? How, how does that connect with confidence or boldness? Saying it all means Speaking plainly, it means speaking honestly with nothing held back, without pretense, without kind of a a, a, an issue of needing to manipulate the reaction of God. The word that we translate confidence here means let it all hang out as you approach God because as you do, you will find mercy and grace. Speaking plainly. There's too much pretending, even as we go to God. There's too much pretending in our prayer. Sometimes our prayers sound like we're a lawyer, you know. Well, God, I guess you've heard that allegedly I engaged in some behavior, which will remain nameless. And it may or may not be wrong, but the incident in question, if it possibly did occur, I'm sure that you will have discretion Maybe it's nothing to be worried about at all, you know, just backpedaling over and over again. But say, saying it plainly is this, God, I'm a rotten sinner and I need mercy. And when you say it plainly, you know that you will find grace. Everything that God does in response to your prayer is grace. It may not be exactly what you want or it may not be what you think you need even, but it is always grace. If in response to your prayers you find discipline, then it is a gift of grace to lead you well. And if in response to your prayers you find blessing, then it is a celebration of grace to bring you joy. But it is always grace, for that's what God does. Grace and mercy. So draw near to him, for he is a sympathetic priest. He understands our need. Draw near to him because of what he promises. He promises mercy and grace. And mercy and grace, if we look at his life, is his default position. Trace the stories of Jesus while he was on earth. And you'll find that the woman caught in adultery is offered forgiveness. You'll find that the prodigal son is given a kiss, not a lecture. You'll find that the hungry are fed without having to declare their income status. And the sick are healed with no forms to fill out at all. If anyone gets the connection between sin and punishment, it's Jesus. But over and over again, as he confronts confronts sinners, his default position is grace and mercy. And that's just what we need. Draw near to him. Because there are times of failure and there are times of question. There are times of anxiety and anxiety is an expensive habit. But you can draw near to him. And know that when you hurt, he sees it. When you cry, he hears it. And when you plead with him, he responds. Why? Because this is the new covenant, and we have a perfectly available priest. When you face the question, who can I depend on and who will respond to my needs, you can come with confidence to Jesus and know that he will respond perfectly. So I asked myself the question, What is drawing near? And it may look like a million things, but it certainly looks like this one thing. It certainly looks like a single word in the middle of the day where you turn to God and you pray, help. It certainly looks like a pause at the beginning of the day at your breakfast table when you fold your hands and the steam from your coffee is rising, but you pray that same prayer, Lord, help. It looks like a breather when you're stopped at a red light. You're in between meetings and you pray that prayer, help. It looks like a pause just before you enter your teenager's room and your hand is on the doorknob, help. (laughs) It looks like the moment of quiet before the doctor walks into the examination room and you already have that drafty apron on, help. When the boss calls you into the office, when the coach calls you in, When your teenage daughter says, Mom, we need to talk. Help, help, help. And here's the point. The help is always available. And the help always helps. Because the helper is the great high priest. And he gets you. He understands you. He is sympathetic and he is available. And so the question for all of us today is simply this. What do you need help in? Draw near. Letting it all hang out and you will find grace and mercy. I want you to think about that question. What do you need help with? The high priest who is your helper cares about every aspect of your life. Approach him in a sense of humility and you will find mercy and grace. Receive it as a gift.